First of all, I want to thank everyone who has been donating. That is marvelous. The downside of it is there is a heck of a lot to do. And we have a very, very short time. A week from today, Christmas sharing starts. We have a lot of sorting to do. And nobody or very, very few people have signed up. Monday night, there's one person signed up. There's nobody else for all of Monday. The Tuesday evening, not a whole bunch of families would sign up. Thursday evening, not. Well, wait a minute. Uh, no. Um, we're Friday, we're coming. I know. Friday for the event and Saturday, there are very, very few people signing up. I know we're a congregation that doesn't sign up. And I also know it's a way for me to keep remembering that the Lord does provide. But I'd also like to sleep. <laughs> so just... Um, spread spread the word to all your friends this weekend at church. We need help. Even if you can just come for an hour, come. Um, and at least let me know or sign up or whatever. <laughs> That's it. All right. Sign up. Sign up. Okay, I, uh, uh, we're going to start class today with another uh, different form of a double rainbow incident. Um, this, this is a, uh, uh, well, this is uh, just before. So this uh, takes place in, uh, at, a, at a Boston Celtics game, and it's uh, someone who really loves Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi is a, is a uh, rock and roll star, rock star, pop music guy from... Uh, Late 80s. But, I mean, he's, you know, he's still around. Yes, but he is old. He's, he's a mature man. Oh, he's way older than you, though, isn't he, Mary? He's got to be way older. He's got to be, like, Easy. 60. Yes, yeah, he, uh, he was big in the 70s, or 30s. Okay, never mind. All right. Anyways, um, the, the audio quality is not so great, but I don't, I don't think you actually need the audio uh, just because... Again, this goes back to um, the notion that love in the Bible is not, not just agape, but it's also eros. It's this passionate love. Because we see this, we're going to study uh, chapter 4, and we see that again displayed in the man as he talks about his wife. Um, uh, and then, of course, that's what God thinks of us, too. It's passionate love. So... Um, we'll go ahead and, and watch this. You might not watch all of it just because you get the picture after. Oh, well, it's pretty funny. I mean, it's not funny. It's it's uh, enlivening. All right. Well, um, uh, there actually. Okay. So, what does that have to do with the Song of Solomon? Uh, it has a lot of things. Oh, actually, there's a uh, exclusive interview. We're not going to watch that. But guess what? He came up with that dance unchoreographed. I, I don't know if you can tell, but. He had not planned that, so, and it, which makes it even funnier is that he, uh, he like, it's. I think it's a play. Oh yeah, okay. It's a playoff game with the Chicago Bulls, and uh, like he doesn't even know that much about basketball, even though he's at this this big Boston Celtics game. It's it's pretty funny because it's it's uh, he loves he, he loves Bon Jovi. Bon Jovi? Oh. He looks older. All right. Um, so anyways, okay. Oh, yeah. So, so part, of, part of today, so we're going to just do kind of chapter four in general. Um, chapter four of Song of Solomon is an uh, uh, interesting chapter for a variety of reasons. But um, I, have, I have, so I just handed out two, like, articles one from uh, a, a like kind of commentary on Blade Runner, 2049, and then one on uh, I got this other one from Pastor Bukes, a better sex ethic, because of uh, what happens in Chapter Four. But what happens in that video right there also deals with Chapter Four because um, 
you, uh, uh, so, you, uh, so chapter 4, Song of Solomon chapter 4 is you have the bridegroom describing his bride in very explicit language. Chapter, or verse 1, behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. And then verse 7, you are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. That actually kind of uh, separates one section. And then in verse 8, it says, Come with me from Lebanon, my bride. Come with me from Lebanon. Depart from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the fountains of, I mean, from the mountains of uh, leopards, which uh, you don't need to know all those places. But um, he is, he wants to go away with his, his bride. Which sounds like, this is a little bit of tangent, I want to get back to the Boston Celtics thing, but um, that sounds like Genesis in what way? Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it has, well, this whole chapter, and when he describes the woman, I mean, she's beautiful, but she's beautiful precisely because she looks like, like paradise. So you have a lot of Garden of Eden language about the woman. And that, that's actually a truth in itself, because women, and we talked about this last year, I think, we should have if we didn't, um, is, you know, women uh, can be understood as the crown of creation, right? So you have, you know, Adam's created first, and then Eve, but of course, you know, that they're together. So mankind is the crown of creation also, but in terms of Male and female. Female is the, the uh, can be understood in another way as a crown of creation. Why would that be? Because women is the sign or the image of heaven on earth. How does that happen? Of course, because what did, who did God choose to, to, to dwell in? But, but Mary, right? So, um, you know, it's all part of God's plan. So, anyway, so... Okay, that's, that's that. So, he, so the man wants to go away. This is the reason why husbands will leave their father and mothers and join. So, um, but, two, there's a reckless abandonment. So he, he uh, doesn't hold anything back about what he sees in, in her. And it, it's not in her, it's he's just describing her. This is what she is. You are beautiful. Um, and then you've captivated my heart. Verse 9, you've captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. You can't, you can't take it. Just, this is what he's got to do. So, the Boston Celtics fan, when he hears Bon Jovi, there's just nothing else he can do. Except for rejoice in his rejoice in the music. Song of Songs, Canticle of Canticles. This is the songbook of the Bible to which we also rejoice in precisely by dancing. Every Christian dances with God. We dance precisely with God in the liturgy. And then of course also in uh, you know husbands and wives dance with each other too. You know, I've always wondered why we have dances at wedding receptions. Yeah, you ever question? You ever question those things? Well, in in studying the Song of Songs, now I guess I have a theological justification that I cannot ignore because I'd rather not dance. I'm a pretty good dancer, though. I'm about, I'm pretty as good pretty good as that guy on the screen. And if you were ever to be at our house on uh, random nights of the week, we have dance parties at our house. So, you can... Uh... Oh, yeah, better watch out. MC Hammer, and oh, there's a variety of songs where something inside Pastor Nelson can't be controlled. It has to be released. Mary, Mary Caesar has seen this. Uh, side of me on a uh, winter retreat a few years ago. Yes. 
What was that? What were the songs then? Oh, uh, fun. Some nights, there we go. Okay. I was trying to think about embarrassing moments, and that was one of them that came to my mind. Okay. All right, anyways, so, th- okay, so again, this is kind of the uh, frame of mind that we have to have when we enter into Chapter 4, because Chapter 4, uh, isolated from love and passion, becomes um, just simply erotic, and if not, you know, uh, surface, surface-y. And then that, um, then you say, oh, no wonder why they didn't let young men read this back in the ancient Near East. Okay, so I'm not going to get too far into the details of chapter 4, because a lot of these um, images, I think, are self-explanatory. Some of them are not. So chapter 4, like verse, um, well, that's still verse 1. Uh, Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. It's, it's long and it's beautiful. Okay, I mean, you don't really need to know what Gilead is or flocks um, of goats. It's kind of lost on us now today. And if I went to, you know, a woman and said, hey, your hair looks nice. Did you get a haircut? Yeah, I got a haircut, Pastor. Thanks for noticing. Yeah, it looks like the flocks of Gilead. <laughs> I'll just say, hey, it looks nice. I won't, I won't say, hey, it looks like the flocks of Gilead. Um, oh, then, yeah, number two, I love number two, verse two. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, of which bears twins, and not one among them has lost its young. <laughs> of course, what does that mean? She's got all of her teeth. Now, remember, dentistry, well, oh, yeah, so, yeah, so, the, yeah, but, of course, this, at this moment in the book, they're, they're, she's not wearing much. She ain't wearing a veil, and she ain't wearing much other than that. Okay, just, we're at the moment. Yeah, so remember, uh, Solomon, uh, Song of Solomon has this kind of increasing circle of intimacy. All right? So, um, you know, so we're getting more intimate with each other. Yeah. Yes, Krista. But you said, my sister. Yeah, my sister, my bride. So this is something that's important for us because, first of all, this is not the first time in, in Holy Scripture that sister comes about. Any, any other stories in the Bible where husbands and wives are sisters and brothers? Uh, Abraham and Sarah. That's right, Abraham and Sarah. And, or it happens twice with Abraham. Is that right? Yeah, Egypt. Does that happen with somebody else, too? I wrote Abraham and Sarah, because that's the most important couple we need to remember. All right. Um, so Abraham, he pretends Sarah is his sister. She's not, but she's his wife. Okay. Now, uh, Pharaoh doesn't, doesn't kill Abraham. Right? Because if... Uh, and why is that? Because... Abraham and Sarah are siblings, and that means there's a level of uh, unity or relationship or intimacy. Okay? So this is also important for us to know is that the uh, Song of Solomon. So Solomon, the bridegroom, sees her as a sister, which means that as any brother and sister know each other, they love each other to death, but yet... It is not a sexual love. So, first and foremost, the bridegroom sees her as a sister in, in God or Christ. So, it is very important for us to know that because he does not enter into this very intimate scene with understanding that he's going to use her for his own pleasure. He sees her. So, this goes back to Genesis where Adam and Eve, Adam is the original, like he's a person unto himself, solid, like I think we talked about original solitude. And so Eve is her own person, not own in terms of like she owns herself, but she is again uh, her, uh, a person before God. So Adam sees Eve 
first as a child before God. The bridegroom sees the bride, or Solomon sees uh, the Shulamite, or, yeah, um, first as a, a child of God, sister, and then bride. Bride then denotes the, the, a, a unity then between Adam and Eve also. So you have these both things. So this is actually a sign of holiness, my sister, my bride. That's really important for us because um, in verse 9, uh, where, the man, where the bridegroom says to his bride, you are a garden closed, you are a fountain sealed, he's acknowledging the mystery of who she is. And only she can open the gate and unseal the fountain of her person. He takes delight in who she is and wants to enter into the gate. But yet he knows that only she can do that. So it's a very powerful image going on in chapter 4. Hence some of these articles I have out. Because consent has made the news lately. But let's uh, before we get to that. If well, yeah, we're going to get to it today, today or next week or something. But I really want so so yeah so uh, the um, my sister my bride deals with a um, the bridegroom wants to enter into the mystery of the bride without violating her, and so it goes back to this circle of intimacy. We're getting closer and closer. Um, so he acknowledges the sister as being, she's unique, unrepeatable, irreplaceable person. Um, she is fearfully and wonderfully made. It's another, uh, way the Bible talks about who she is. And so he says that of her. So she does not have to say that to him. It's very important because he is already he's initiating this relationship, but yet at the same time he's submitting himself to her. So of course God does the same. God initiates his relationship with us, but he does not forcibly make us relate to him. Holly. Yes. That's Yeah. It's both. Yeah, it's exactly. So this is so, I mean, there's so many interesting things happening in chapter four. The man is completely, he, he's acknowledging who she is and saying, and being completely open to her. He, I mean, he, he's enraptured. By her, those first seven verses in chapter four, he is not. He, he is, for whatever she thinks of the way she looks or who she is, that's not what he thinks. He thinks she is, well, beautiful. Beautiful, like in the sixth day, God made them and they are very good sort of way of understanding. So, you know, one of the things is that, you know, she was a sinner. Yes, she was a sinner. Okay. Yeah, that's true. But guess what? He sees her through the eyes of grace, forgiveness. And so has made her clean. And so, but the thing is, though, he says, I delight in you. My desire is to be with you. And then he awaits her answer. Yeah, that's a very vulnerable place for men. Because what can happen? She can say, no. But of course, as a man, I would only want to do that to a woman who I have trust in. Right? So that relationship is a relationship of love. Now, that's not, that's not just between husband and wife, though. That's between friends. Right? I mean, again, we're, I mean, 
the Song of Solomon has this, we're using this image, not just for husbands and wives, but for all Christians and for, I mean, between, between people, between God and people, okay? So, the only way relationships will grow is through vulnerability. Yeah. Okay, that's great. Um, so he, yeah, so the, um, so he acknowledges who she is. Yeah, actually, um, I, I, I read another review on a movie, but I didn't use that. Wonder Woman. But I like the little line. It's, um, uh, the, yeah, so the, 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 it was a fairly positive review of the movie. But um, women are wonderful. So uh, Wonder Woman versus taking the wonder out of women, which I think is, is a nice little way of understanding things. Okay, that would be uh, Song of Songs, one through seven. I mean, he's, he's in awe and wonder of a woman. And all women are like that because all women on a certain level, relate to the Blessed Virgin Mary. To, again, we have this crown of creation happening. So even though he's describing his wife, it's a description of every woman. It's pretty extraordinary. Which again, then, goes back to the news. <laughs> I, I, I mean, ever since the Harvey Weinstein's broken, I, can't, I just can't stop thinking about the nonsense of what has come about in today's news and how Song of Solomon is so, like, practical. It's extraordinary. Um, and if you don't know about Harvey Weinstein, that's great. Just don't, don't watch the news then. Because it's Harvey Weinstein, Al Franken, Matt Lauer, Garrison Keillor, Russell Simmons, Roy Moore. Moore. I mean, who else? Oh, I don't even know who that is. Oh, okay. See, it doesn't even, I mean, now it's just, it's a joke. It's a joke. Because men don't, don't consider women to be the crown of creation. They don't, they don't consider them to be, I mean, even people, right? Stupid. I use that word technically. Yes, Krista. I just was, I couldn't have it to sing. You know, just um, a Solomon who had so many wives. It's amazing that he can write something like this. Yeah, well, actually, so this is really important for us because um, Solomon is not above, he's not a perfect person. So praise be to God that this actually exists in spite of Solomon. I mean, that's, that's the great thing. Because once we fixate on the Solomon, the person, what are we not fixated on? Yeah, his word, Christ himself. So yeah, and that's why I wanted to down, I think Nancy brought that up uh, maybe last month about like how Solomon, this question. And I, there's two, I mean, Solomon has some sort of authority over this, this book of the Bible. And, you know, whether he wrote it, you know, right away before he had all those wives, um, or perhaps this is true of just one wife. The Solomon's not the point of the Bible, the book, right? Christ is the point. Just as just as the Pharisees, you know, gave that scenario, or Sadducees gave that scenario about the the you know all the different um, uh, husbands, right? And he says, "What are you talking about?" Uh, this is, you know, marriage is not about earthly things. It's about heavenly marriage. That's why people are not given into marriage. Or when uh, the Pharisees ask about divorce in Matthew 19. So both Sadducees and Pharisees have questions about marriage and relationships. And Jesus says to both of them, you're aiming at the wrong target. So Moses, uh, you know, Moses granted uh, a, a divorce and he said, well, that's not the way it was supposed to be from the beginning. It was Adam and Eve. 
So Solomon, even though he had however many wives and concubines, and I'm not even sure what concubines are, um, we can't lose fact, lose sight of the fact that this is a, a pointing towards something better. So yeah, there is a historicity to the Song of Solomon, but there's something more than that. So so Solomon is uh, he's not uh, let off the hook by what I just said, but he's also we also don't want to say of the Song of Solomon. I don't have to pay attention to it too much because Solomon was a jerk, anyways. Yeah, Holly. Well, I'm not trying to defend Alliances, yes, right. Alliances to raise up the children of Israel. Now, of course, when Jesus came, we didn't have to do that anymore because the whole world is Well, yeah, the, but the thing with Solomon, though, is that when he married other wives, he also married their gods. I mean, that, that's just the fundamental problem with the, the amount of wives. You know? All right, anyways, so yeah, so Krista, it is amazing that this book was actually written, but that's why we know God, God wrote, the, <laughs> wrote the Bible on that. He used, he used sinful people to write this Bible, um, which is, is great. Now, um, now, okay, great. So again, so Solomon, so the verse, verses 1 through 7 in chapter 4, the king desires, well, that's another important thing too, is that Solomon is this king. There's a king who desires this woman, which goes back to the vulnerability issues, that you have a king and authority and power, and who does he submit to? He submits himself to the woman. Now, in a very very particular way, but we'll get to that in a second. All right. Um, Feminine beauty should be praised and and, uh, should be, uh, yeah, you know, and that's the thing, too, is that, you know, when people talk about, like, um, so many women in church, you know, and not enough men, and I think underlying some of that is, like, you know, yes, we, all, we, need, we need men and women in the church, but, I mean, thank God women are in the church. Yeah, just, I mean, think about that. I mean, I, I yeah. So when we lament men not being in church, we should lament just the men being, not being in church and the fact that there's only women in the church. We should rejoice in the fact that there's women in the church. But So anyways, so yeah, so women are to be highly praised. Not for themselves, but for how God made them. And because women are women, then they are, by fact them being women, hold a very special role in, in the world. Okay. Which we talked about that last year, right? Being a woman means being a mother, regardless if you're married or have a biological child. Okay. Um, oh, oh, yeah. So, by the way, too, though, back to Holly's thing. Well, I might have mentioned this already. Um, so, when he submits himself to her, she knows he's submitting. So, she's in a very... If we understand it in political terms, she's in a, in a place of power. And unfortunately, you hear that used in terms of women's sexuality, right? Using that as a tool for power. Um, that's not how the Song of Solomon understands their relationship. So he is submitting himself to her. He is giving himself to her. And she knows this in verse 16 of chapter 4. He's submitting himself not just to her body, but to her whole feminine body-soul mystery. His longing is for her, not just her body. And because of that, she can... She, well, he says in verse 8, right? Let's go to Lebanon... Let's get away from here. She's only going to do that if she trusts him. 
And so by trusting him, she's vulnerable. She's going away to a place by, by herself with this guy. The, 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 the ultimate relationship of that is, of course, marriage. Marriage is a place of trust, vulnerability, intimacy. Um, but, of course, this is, again, about Christ and his church. Christ does not want his church to be with anybody else. So he says, come with me. What does he say to the disciples? Follow me. They're on their way. They're on their way. They're going somewhere. They're, of course, going to, they're on the way to heaven through the cross and resurrection. Of course, that also mimics then the Exodus in the Old Testament where God ransoms Israel out of Egypt to go out into the desert to be alone with him. So, of course, Israel, I mean, it's, it's a good, good story in Exodus, right? Because they trust him when he kicks butt, but then in the average day in the wilderness, yeah, when the food is not so great and water is kind of scarce, what do they start doing? Complaining. Not trusting. It's a very interesting little picture if you think about it in terms of discipleship and our relationship to God. God's the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. He's taking us away, of course, to heaven, to the promised land. Again, um, we have that language in chapter 4. So, um, but of course, for, for the bridegroom, where is the promised land? It's her. But it's not just her. It's the relationship. So you've arrived when you're together. Now, I know there's a lot of like romantic kind of goofy songs maybe in the back of your head as I describe that. But for Jesus, even though he's on the move, and it seems like they're going someplace, the disciples are precisely in the right spot because they are next to Jesus. So um, they've arrived. And that's why Jesus says the kingdom of God is here in your midst. Everyone's thinking that it's somewhere else. You've got to get to it. It's going. Now that is true because of the, the last the last judgment, the eschaton, where tears are wiped away and all things are made new. But we already are experiencing that in our relationship with Jesus, the bridegroom, his bride. All right, that's a tangent. All right, anyways, so um, let's let's just uh, we have a, we have a little bit of time here. This is great. Um, oh, okay. So so then uh, so he he talks about how wonderful, beautiful she is, and this is all very true. Of course, this is. Uh, for us, we're baptized, Ephesians chapter 5. The husband marries a spotless wife. But we, like me, of course, I'm a sinner. But the only way I become without blemish is if I'm washed and made white as snow through holy baptism. So again, so the verse 7 verses are um, God making us beautiful. And it's not just pretend like he, he, he's just, you know, it's just like a, he's just talking about it. His word is making us beautiful. It's, it's so this is really important for us that um, God makes us what, what, what we are. I mean, so it's best not to disagree with God. But that's hard to, that's hard to believe, isn't it, right? It's hard to believe that we're actually forgiven. It's hard to believe that we're actually made white as snow because I don't, I don't really see it. Yeah. So this is an ongoing thing for, for us. But we trust in God's word, not how we feel. It's like a First Communion where I, I tell the children, I uh, have them eat a, a, a piece of a cracker, a piece of bread. And then I said, you know, guess what that tastes like when it becomes the body of Jesus? And they're always like, I never really thought about that. Uh, I, I don't know. That's what I would say. It's the same. They're like, whew. Um, I said, 
but we trust Jesus' word more than our tongues. We trust his word more than, than what we see. The great thing, though, is, is that he brings people along us that says the same thing as he does. And so it's not just us trying to believe the word on the page. It's other people who come, comes up and says, thank you so much, you're a blessing. Or, thank you so much, I, I, I appreciate everything you've done. You are uh, inspiration to me, or whatever people say. Yeah, it's, it's okay. It's okay to say thank you. It's okay to actually believe them. So, okay. Uh, all right, so now, so the garden closed. So let me just read this. Um, uh, verse, verse 12. I'm sorry, I think I said verse 9 earlier. Verse 12. Well, verse 9 is also, that goes back to the vulnerability where he says, you've cap- captivated my heart, my sister, my bride. You've captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes. So he, who, who, she has his heart. So that's a very intimate, vulnerable position to be in. All right. Then in verse 12, a garden locked is my sister, my bride is spring locked, a fountain sealed. And he basically, I mean, he kind of tells all that imagery in verse 13, 14, and 15. Well, verse 14, 13 to 14 is, you know, he wants to uh, taste the fruits and, and smell the smells. And, and then in verse 15, a garden fountain a well of living water flowing streams from Lebanon. So he doesn't want that closed anymore. He wants the, the fountain unsealed. Now verse 16 is, is, a, is a little interesting thing because nobody really knows if it's the bridegroom talking or if it's the bride. And I, I'm wondering if it's maybe both. So if it's the bride, bridegroom, um, you know, he's asking for his garden, now my garden, my and mine in the Song of Solomon is never understood in terms of possessing to do whatever I want. It is, um, my is always understood in unity. So, um, yeah, okay. Um, but of course, uh, so if it's the bridegroom, bridegroom saying this, He's calling his, his uh, bride's garden his, which then understands this terms of unity, or it could be the bride speaking in terms of like she's now unsealing her fountain and opening up her garden, which of course then finishes the end of verse 16. Let my beloved come to his garden and eat its choicest fruits. All right, so this last part is um, what's really kind of in the news as of late. And I, I got two articles out there, one, one from Blade Runner, like I said. Has anyone ever seen the original Blade Runner? Okay, it's science fiction. It takes place in the future where there are uh, human, the human society is, is uh, basically uh, made replicants. It's, uh, they manufacture people. And in the first Blade Runner, uh, there's this Harrison Ford character. He's a cop. And he's going around and eradicating the world of replicants. Sort of. The replicants that he's eradicating are ones who actually are self-understanding. No longer consider themselves objects, but as subjects. As people. And for all intents and purposes, they are people kind of DNA-wise. So there's a question of what makes a person person. Okay, that's very important for us. But then we go to the new, the new one. Now it takes that story even further. And we have a little story about the replicants and how their creators have devolved into kind of this animal way of being relating to each other. And the replicants have now become more human than their human creators. And what has changed that is, uh, in the article you'll see, well, here, um, page two. I got rid of my copy with all my notes on it, so I have to 
Oh, yeah, the top of page two. Um, so you have a replicant. Oh, okay, so a replicant elaborates on what turned him from slave to freedom, so how he became from an object to a subject. And he's talking to another replicant, which we don't want. You newer models are happy scraping the blank because you've never seen a miracle. Of course, the miracle is they've actually seen the birth of a child. And that's what's changed them from subject, I mean, from object to subject. So in connection with this theme, the film brings forward an underlying examination of human sexuality. There's some awful, awful images in this movie. Now, I've not, I've not, I've not seen this movie yet. I've, I've read plenty of, I'm waiting for it to come on DVD because it's cheaper. I mean, who, who goes to movies these days, right? I mean, I can't spend that much money. I'm still waiting for like the the uh, like the rail pass of movies. You know, like you go to Europe, you pay one price, you can ride the train as much as you want. I I, I want to do that. Can movies movie theaters do that? Are they? They should. I mean, like when all my kids are growing up, I'm going to buy one of those. And we we'll just go to the movies every day. After I do all my honeydew jobs, of course. Well, I, uh, well, I kind of do. All right. Okay. Um, all right. So, anyways, but I, the the first Blade Runner movie is just fantastic. I love it. It's very interesting for me. I kind of like sci-fi in general, so I'm always interested in kind of what themes they pick up. And there's a lot of theological themes. So, anyway, so I've read a lot about this movie, so I'm excited about it. Even though I kind of bombed at the box office, I guess. So maybe it might be boring, but. I like boring movies. Okay, many scenes are filled with erotic undertones. Uh, you just kind of this nasty objective, uh, making especially women objective. And then that third paragraph. In distinguishing between humans and replicants, we see that humanity has degraded into a cesspool of venerably, venerably, added and abetted by a social tendency towards hyper-consumption. So consumerism has now just not with stuff, but has infiltrated how we relate to people. People are there for my pleasure, my consumption. Which, um, all right, let's finish this, and then I'm going to talk about cannibalism in a second. Some replicants are created with the express purpose of servicing human lust. These models, in quotes, stand awaiting those in need of their service, giving themselves over to their lustful clientele with cool indifference. Their own participation in such acts is minimized to the point that these replicants might serve merely as physical vessels giving flesh to an electro-fantasy. All right, so there's a terrible scene in the movie. But now this last seconds here, this, last, this next uh, paragraph. The physical relations shared or implied in the film seem borderline pornographic. They are pornographic. Though possessing a physical being are hardly even a consideration. Love is no prerequisite to sex. Only consent is necessary. Self-giving need not be present and a mutual taking of pleasure. Blade Runner extends this dystopian disintegration of human sexuality towards its ultimate end, that of procreation. So um, what we have here in this movie is you have people who are consensual. You have consensual, consensual relationship happening. But as you watch it, you know it's not consensual. These people have been created to service, to be objects. But they're people. <laughs> and um, so when we, in the news, consent has received a lot of, of news. In fact, uh, last year, I, uh, I'm on an email list for this magazine, Good Magazine. And they sent out an article on consent. And they used a cup of tea as um, a lesson on what consent means. 
I mean, consent for for sexual intercourse. By the way, just want to make sure. That, okay. Uh, so if you're uh, if you offer someone tea and they say yes, I'd love to have some, then you give them tea. Which means, if you ask to have sex with someone, they say yes, then you should have sex. You can have sex. If they say no, then you shouldn't say, "Hey, are you sure?" Or maybe come back in a, ten minutes and say, "Do you want some tea?" Now it's kind of it's supposed to be playful, but it's very sad because even though it's understand it's it's understanding consent purely in a yes or no environment, which of course. That's not true. Because you can't just have consent. Consent is not a yes or no question. Because it's a relationship of human beings. And what Song of Solomon is so, is so powerfully shown in chapter 4 is that uh, no man should ask to have sex with someone who who's, he's not willing to give himself up for. And in Blade Runner, of course, that's not part of the environment. And what's been absent in the movie up until now this point is children. So sex, of course, abstracted from having children, results, I mean, you carry it out to the end, is, is another form of consumption, of using people for your own benefit or, or, or pleasure. Of course, in, in uh, Solomon, Solomon chapter 4, that, that's not happening. This man has described his bride as someone who is his delight. And he wants to give himself to her to never be taken apart. To have a relationship of a forever mutual giving and receiving. Um... And of course, the environment or the, the one relationship where that can happen is, is marriage. That's where sex is to be, to be had, to be, to be expressed. Because the unity of persons, ultimate expression is understood in children. And that's why in Blade Runner, children are so, like, they upend society. Really, really great. Because I love having a lot of children in the church. And I think it's funny. um, Yeah. Because, well, not just not even for fathers and mothers, but for everybody. We are part of a community that's upending society. I mean, it might not seem like that much in Wheaton, right? But I've been thinking about this for a while. My children, I mean, if they, they grow up and in, in stay in Wheaton, that's super great. But I think about my children growing up and moving away. And what kind of community are they going to be in? So it's like imperative of me to think about the future of not just my children, but all the children of the church. And where, where's going to be the next community for them? Now, I could say to them, you know, you're not going anywhere, and we could probably pool our resources and buy, you know, some building in downtown Wheaton and say we're all going to live here, and whether you like it or not. Which, to a certain extent, I, I like that idea. But um, <laughs> assuming not, assuming that my, my kids will grow up and, and, and move, I have to be able to instill in them like what what it means to to be a community of of life and, and so part part of part of this is actually integrating our sexual lives in our into our community healing it's, which it has to do with a lot of healing so the thing about blade runner i'm sorry this is under i should have said this earlier is that it it gives an image to the brokenness of our sexual lives whether it be the abuse, the assault, or just simply the confusion of, of not knowing why this even exists. But as a church, I mean, Jesus, Jesus is already, I mean, it's in the Song of Solomon. We, we are 
enraptured with one another because God has made us that way. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, each one of us. And because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, we have a dignity that needs to be revered. And so, not just, I mean, especially in husbands and wives, but each, in each relationship we have one another. Where, I, I mentioned this before, right? Didn't I say about like how uh, sharing, a, sharing a lawnmower right, can bring out a, a more intimate life? But uh, again, in, in, the, in our sexual lives, though, children are the result. That's the life that we're talking about. Half you know, half husbands. I mean, 23 chromosomes, right, from each, each person makes a whole person. But, uh, th- so that's the tragedy of what's happening in today's society and with consent is, is it's just a yes or no and there's no conversation about love. Now, love meaning uh, for God to love the world that he gave his only begotten son sort of love, not I, I feel good about you kind of love the one that I'm willing to sacrifice myself or give myself up for. That is what you're consenting to. You're consenting to receiving another person. And the man is consenting to giving himself up to another person. But you, you only can do that, though, is if you understand yourself as a person. So, my daughters, you know, we have to treat them, I mean, we, I have to lead them to understand themselves as who they are. They're fearfully, wonderfully made, irreplaceable, unique, and unrepeatable. And so as a boy comes in their life, yeah, the garden's closed and the fountain's sealed until that, that young man then shows himself to be the one to put his hand to the latch, which is in Song of Solomon chapter 5. He puts his hand to the latch, and he's, he's ready, because he's been standing at the door and knocking. So we have to teach our, our young ladies that, and then we have to teach our boys to love and revere women, to say, you are You are beautiful. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. You have to say that. So, um, so th- this second article, which we won't get to, the better sec- sex ethic, is a great, uh, interesting article. And, and Pastor Bukes, who should really be talking about this because he's he, he's done a great job talking about that with me, is uh, he has um, this article is very take it home with you, and he'll go over with you next week. Is um, she gives a scenario of how a yes or no consent can't be can't be enough because you have a man in power and you have a uh, a woman who desires his affection and all he wants is her body. So when he says, um, "I want to have sex," she's she. What does she want? She wants love. So she thinks. That if I say yes, he will love me. It's consensual, but it's not right. I mean, cons- we have to re- we have to redefine. We have to have a better sex ethic. This writer is, is a Christian, and Pastor Beeks actually contacted her, so I'll let I'll let him tell you the story about that, because um, it's very interesting what she writes. But um, so so the the bride the bride in, in Song of Solomon chapter four gives consent in a way that's not like anything you've read in the news, and that's why you have a bunch of men who are confused. Well, Twenty six years. I thought it was. I thought it was consensual. Now, I mean, like certain people, like Harvey Weinstein. I mean, some of it is just you know they're just terrible animals. They're awful people and. Um, but like, for instance, I read a, uh, article on Russell Simmons, who's a rap mogul. <laughs> he's a man, a big business billionaire. And, uh, he had a relationship, he had relations with a younger, I mean, a younger woman. And he thought it was consensual because she didn't say no. 
She didn't say yes either, but she didn't say no. Well, he's, a, he's an idiot because he wasn't, he didn't say to her, you are my love, you are beautiful, you are my love, and you are a garden closed and is about and sealed, and I will await your answer. He just kept going. He put his hand to the latch, and he could care less about what, if it was open or not, because he was breaking in, or he's tricked her into giving him the key. But that's the young men. That, that, that's how our, our world has um, been teaching our children. Sexual harassment in high school is epidemic, and it's often unreported. Yeah, there's a study that just came out. Pretty sad. So this is where the church is going to be a shining light in society. I can't remember if I said this to you ever. But there will be a great... Evangelism will not be going around door to door and asking people, you know, if they die tonight, would they go to heaven? Evangelism will be going to the park and playing with all your children. Amongst a bunch of people who have no children. And actually aren't unmarried. If you, think, if you think that's crazy, go to like Washington, D.C., go to Manhattan. You'll see a bunch of people who are not married and have no children, and they're in their 30s, and women who are be almost close to, to not being able to bear children, who, who desire it, I mean, who are not celibate. I mean, again, this goes back to this, so yeah, let me backtrack here, is that you you have a society that says marriage is just kind of an old traditional thing. Sex is purely individual for your own desires. And what are the results of those two two ways of being? People are unmarried and have no children. I mean that makes that makes complete sense. And that's what we see in statistics in all of Europe. The birth rate is not even able to support. I mean, from a sociological perspective. I think you need to have two children per family to maintain population. The birth rate in Europe is under two. Yeah. All right. Krista, then we got to go, and I, I've been pontificating there. We should get back to the Bible. Uh, yeah. It, it changed the position of the women uh, in our society. You know, they, they are just, uh, they have a different uh, uh, standard now. You know, and, and therefore, it's what we see what we hear in the news, that's a kind of, um, that the uh, women has been a bit more power. Yeah, well, again, so, so um, being, a, being a, you know, a dad of three children, three girls, um, I want my children to be strong. I want my girls to be strong. Because I can tell you what, it's going to take a lot of strength to say no. To stand up. So that, that, that's one of the, the, the ironies about kind of the, the feminist movement. There's a lot of good things in the feminist movement. Yeah, I think I mean, women are already strong. I, I'm the one who put uh, in Mother's Day the, the quote from The Walking Dead. A couple of Mother's Day things ago. Carol. She's the main character in The Walking Dead. And there's a great scene where a man comes up and says, I knew, I knew you were a strong woman. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I, knew, I knew you were a mother. Now, by the way, Walking Dead, post-apocalyptic zombie television show. People who had certain lives before the apocalypse now have different lives. And, uh, but a man comes up to Carol and says, I knew you were a mother. You had to have been a mother. She's like, what are you talking? Because she's like a, she's like kind of a, she's a take charge kind of lady who is willing to like kill and fight to keep, to, to protect her little community. But she has no children anymore. She did have children. And so the guy's like, um, I knew you were a mother. She's like, how could you tell? Cause she's like the farthest thing from being a, in her mind from a mother. And, she, and he says, cause you're so strong. I knew you had to be a mother. Which I think is true. 
So this is part of how, the, the, how we understand women. Women are, are strong. I mean, they're strong, just like men. They're just, I mean, that's the thing. By the way, too, we, we didn't talk about this today, but it's in my notes. Uh, men desire feminine beauty because uh, be, because it's through feminine beauty we, we get to, to experience God. Through, through Mary, Jesus comes into the world. Through Holy Mother Church, the gospel is proclaimed. So this is underlining our existence. Of course, what does the devil do to men? It takes something that's an icon of beauty and twists it into an idol. And so, unfortunately, men, who should be the initiators of these relationships, are the manipulators. And so women, in response to that, have had to, you know, say no, and you have all the nonsense happening now today. So it's both sides of the same coin, Krista. Back to your point. Yes, there is a, we're telling, telling women the wrong thing, even though there's a little bit of truth in it. And we're telling men the wrong thing. And we have to go back to the way that God created us. All right, but let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We'll see see you next week.